Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Dr. Susan Clayton. Dr. Clayton is the Whitmore Williams Professor and Chair of Psychology at the College of Worcester in Ohio. She has a PhD in Social Psychology from Yale University. Her research focuses on the human relationship with the natural world and the psychosocial impacts of environmental changes. Most recently, she has been exploring the potential effects of climate change on human well-being. She has written or edited five books and is the lead author of the upcoming sixth assessment report for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Welcome, Dr. Clayton. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm very excited to have on as our guest, Dr. Susan Clayton. Welcome, Dr. Clayton. Thanks. It's really nice to join you today. I'm interested in what you have to say because you do a lot of research on climate change and the mental health impact that has on individuals. You are a social psychologist, and I'm so interested in just hearing what you have to say about the research you've done and the work that you do. Thanks. Well, I'm really pleased to call attention to this topic, which I think hasn't been considered very much, but more and more people are beginning to think about it. Where did your work originate or how? How did this come about as a specialty? Well, there's a sort of general background, which is even though I was trained as a social psychologist with, I have to say, zero emphasis on environmental issues, I was interested in environmental issues. And so as far back as the 90s, started to try and think about the psychological implications of environmental issues. And then about 10 years later, the American Psychological Association put together a task force to examine psychology and climate change. And I had done enough related to that that I was able to be included in the task force. But that was really the first time I started to think in depth about the impacts of climate change in particular on human well-being. So the APA, the American Psychological Association, what year did they start recognizing that that was going to have some psychological impact? The year that the task force was formed, I think was probably 2008 or maybe 2009. The report was first published online and then actually it was further developed into a special issue of American Psychologist on Psychology and Climate Change. And that came out in 2011. Got it. Okay. I mean, it's. I'm happy to hear that there's some emphasis on that and recognition that that is going to make an impact in terms of well-being of people. But I mean, if you think about the general idea of climate change and environment and the effects that has on an individual and well-being and mental health, it's similar to just a trauma idea, right, in terms of how trauma can affect well-being and mental health of the individual. And when you think of trauma, maybe some people think about the individualized trauma, but it's more of a group trauma and this idea of just maybe natural disasters, natural things that happen that affect groups of people. And that's really how you think about climate change and the impact that has on people. But I think the difference between a natural disaster and climate change is this is something that's permanent and accelerating. 
Yeah, I would actually expand on that definition a little bit because I think certainly there's a huge category of climate change impacts that has to do with the trauma of natural disasters and everything we know about how climate change is affecting natural disasters means that's going to be relevant to those sort of post-traumatic experiences. But there are other ways too in which climate change is having an impact. And you know, some writers have drawn attention to this. Uh, you often hear people use the term existential worry or existential crisis because there's a feeling that climate change really affects at some level some basic perceptions of the world we have and is calling for a an adjustment to some of those very basic assumptions. So there are impacts associated with that kind of level as well. Got it. So what are some of the basics of how this is changing someone's well-being or mental health? And what do you see? I, I would say, first, I'll describe two different categorizations. And one is, I think the most obvious impacts are the kinds of things you referred to already the impacts on mental health of going through some sort of natural disaster. We've seen a lot of work on how people respond to hurricanes and major storms, increasingly awareness of things like floods and wildfires, something that many of your listeners may be thoughtful of. But so these direct, immediate impacts. And then there are also indirect effects, which people might not be as aware of, but of course, living through an experience like that is going to affect things like your community structure, perhaps your access to medical services or schooling or your job. And of course, those threats to those things can also have an indirect effect on your mental health. So that's the immediate effects. And there are also, as you referred to a minute ago, these slower, gradual impacts of climate change that are going to affect a lot more people than the storms. And that's the gradual increases in temperatures, the changing patterns in precipitation, maybe melting glaciers, eroding coastlines, all the things along those lines. And those two have the potential to affect our mental health, especially there's a good body of evidence related to heat. And even there, you can think about indirect impacts, like, of course, those changing patterns of precipitation are leading many people to lose their homes. So you have forced migrations either within a country or across national borders. And those are associated with threats to mental health in many ways. And then the third category is what I think is only just beginning to emerge as a topic that people are aware of. And that's the idea that merely thinking about climate change can be its own source of anxiety. So that's what I would call climate anxiety, but other people might use the term more like eco-anxiety or a more general term. Right. Well, rewinding to talking about the different types of mental health impacts that you will have at different stages, what are some of the immediate impacts of climate change, floods, fires, et cetera? I mean, what, what do you see during those periods? You definitely see, and this this research has been around for a long time since we've been having, you know, extreme weather events for longer than we've been aware of climate change. You definitely see increased rates of things like post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, often substance abuse, suicidal ideology. Suicide rates tend to go up, although since they're fairly low, they don't necessarily go up very much. Yeah, so all those really, I think, fairly easy to document levels of mental health problems do tend to go up Mm. after these natural disasters. 
Right. And I would assume the same trend you notice with the indirect effects, but there, are, mm-hmm. I guess you have that immediate event, right? And most natural disasters that happen immediately, which is the major stressor. And then there's these kind of micro stressors. I mean, they're not usually micro, <laughs> they feel macro, but these compounding stressors that just build on that. Absolutely. Right. And of course, a lot of the research is not really able to untangle what specific thing might have led to the increase in a mental health problem. But you do see that sometimes, whereas if it was all just due to the immediate event, you would probably expect the mental health problems to spike and then start decreasing. But often you find continued elevation in rates of problems for weeks, months, sometimes even years after the disaster probably because people are coping with those indirect effects. And is there research about children, minors, and the effects that that has on their developmental trajectory or mental health vulnerabilities later on? I mean, I think that's probably really hard to study, but... There is a lot of research on that, and you can look at children's experiences in a variety of ways. One is there's some evidence that they are more vulnerable to the impacts, like the increased rates of PTSD and so on. And part of the problem is that even if they aren't personally affected, they are so dependent on other people for everything. So that kind of increases their vulnerability. If their caretakers are affected, the children are likely to be affected. Children are, you know, might also be affected by an interruption in schooling, for example, which is something you often see during or after an extreme weather event. So um, there's all kinds of ways for children to experience an impact. And then there's the potential for long-term effects on children because of the fact that they're still developing. So just, I think, really in the past few years, increasing awareness that experiencing a traumatic event as a child might permanently impact the way you respond to kind of emotional triggers as an adult and impair your ability to regulate your own emotions. So whenever we're talking about children, we have to bear in mind that things that might affect an adult at a more temporary level have the potential for these really long-term effects on children. So also this discussion about temporary stressors versus more longer term existential burden. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Because the stressor isn't going away. It's almost feeling, and it's true, it's getting worse and becoming more intense and more frequent in terms of the kind of major events that are occurring. So absolutely. And there's so much we don't know there. You know, when we think of people responding to a negative event, you think, okay, you just need to adjust to the impact and then get back to normal. But obviously there is no normal in many cases to get back to in these cases. We can speculate that people might be able to adapt. We do adapt to a lot of things. And so that's a possibility, but climate change is not something that happens all at once and then it's done. It's a continuing process. So it might be, it might be just impossible to adapt to the kinds of increases in heat, for example, or changing weather patterns. But yeah, at some level, they have to kind of wait and see. Mm-hmm. Right. And when I couple the word adaptation with resilience, mm-hmm. with that comes along this idea that different people respond differently to stressors, right? And some people are able to have a bit more resilience moving through these traumas that occur. Absolutely. And I really would want your listeners to recognize that you're not doomed to have a mental health impact because 
you've experienced a, a hurricane or a wildfire or even because the temperatures are increasing. So most people recover, most people are resilient and we need to, I think, be focusing our attention on how can we help people to be more resilient in the face of these things that we know are occurring and going to occur more rapidly. So what are those things? <laughs> well, some of them I think we have pretty good evidence for, and some of them are more speculative for me, but we know that good social connections are really powerful source of resilience for people. So for people to maintain their social connections, but also for communities to put more emphasis on promoting social connections and trying to look out for people who might be isolated and, and provide more opportunities for them to feel connected. More access to mental health services, both beforehand and, and certainly after an extreme weather event. There's good evidence for the importance of being able to receive those mental health services. I think at some level, this is a, a different issue, but clearly related. There's increasing evidence about the importance of access to green spaces for mental health. So urban design that takes into account the need to provide people with access to nature can help resilience as well, I think. Yeah. And thinking about this idea about climate anxiety, how do you think about how people should approach that in general? Because when you were talking about, actually, this is connected to talking about community, feeling that you have a community and you have community support, that's assuming that everybody understands in the same way the threat that we're experiencing, right? And I could see how if you're in a community that some people necessarily don't believe this as being a major threat, there's a lot of disconnect and devaluing of someone's worry or concern. So if you think about, I mean, the communities work when everybody in the community understand the anxiety that the other person is experiencing. So... Is it about ignoring the worry? Is it about engaging in the worry? Well, I want to address your first point first, which is this actually makes me think this could be one way of enhancing resilience. I think one of the distinctive aspects of climate anxiety is this social disagreement and even you know controversy about climate change, which is, you know, at this point a little absurd, but nevertheless, it still exists. So part of what you feel when you are anxious about climate change, and people definitely report this, is frustration that other people don't seem to be as anxious as you are. And it might lead you to question the legitimacy of your own concerns. I think something that people who may be approaching a mental health problem might wonder, am I being reasonable or am I being unreasonable? And I think it's inevitable, or at least almost inevitable, that we will, as a society, become more willing to acknowledge the reality of climate change and stop having so much debate about it. And I think that by itself might help people a little bit, at least, to, you know, they feel like, okay, I'm still worried, but at least I'm not doubting my own truth. I'm not doubting my own reality. Right. And also this idea that almost this idea of defeat. So if not everybody acknowledges the problem, then how will change ever happen? And then it makes me think of, I mean, just curious, has there been research done on people who 
don't acknowledge this as a problem. I, I think that'd be actually really fascinating. And this idea that denial is actually very helpful to curb anxiety and worry. And in some ways, and with mental health and mental well-being, that's actually a pretty healthy place to be sometimes. Absolutely. I think that's in some ways one of the most interesting things about this issue. People who are in denial about climate change are probably not going to be experiencing climate anxiety and denial as you obviously know, is can be an effective way of coping with your own emotions. So if that's your primary concern is to tamp down your own anxiety, you might be able to do that by saying, well, there's not really a problem or perhaps not being as absolute as that, but just saying, well, it's, it's not a real problem or I'm sure someone will come up with a solution for that. And so that you are probably going to experience, and there's evidence to support this, you're going to be less anxious to the extent that you are successful at that. But that's a really short-term solution because, of course, it doesn't address the problem. Alternatively, if you admit the problem and nevertheless you feel that you can't do anything about it, so you can't really address the problem, that's kind of a recipe for a lot of negative emotions, including anxiety. So we do have to, to thread that needle in some ways. If everybody's in denial, we will definitely not address the problem but trying to address the problem can lead to an increase in negative emotions, which I think we then have the potential to ameliorate through other ways that don't require denial. These issues with climate change and the worry about climate change, does it remind you of other eras and other problems that the human race has been faced with? Yeah, I've been asked a lot about the comparison to, you know, the fear of nuclear war and deployment of nuclear bombs back in the 50s. And I was not there, so I don't really know what it felt like. And I don't think there was a lot of research on it. In retrospect, I wish there had been more. But it seems like there are certainly some similarities in that sense of a looming dread, but obviously differences in part that we we're not just anticipating that climate change might happen. It is happening and we can increasingly see those impacts. My sense is that people were actually able to cope pretty well with that fear of nuclear disaster. There were probably some exceptions, but it's a good reminder. I, I think all of those children who were taught to duck and cover, I think they probably grew into pretty healthy adults. It was just when you're a child, you can accept a lot of things as just part of life and, and they don't seem particularly traumatizing. Of course, related to what we were just talking about, a key difference was that I think society did accept that this was a real threat. So you didn't have that same sense of a political divide over the issue. Interesting. I've heard you speak about the studies that have been done and the research that's been done about heat. I was fascinated by it. Can you talk a little bit more about the research that we know at this mm -hmm. point? Yeah, and this is actually something that I was surprised to learn about when I started to look into it. So I, as you mentioned, I'm a social psychologist, so I primarily, certainly at an earlier point in my career, studied social behavior rather than sort of individual mental health. And we have really good evidence that heat is associated with aggression. And this is evidence based on field research where you might compare a hot year to a not so hot year in the same place. But it's also based on laboratory research where you can artificially manipulate temperature and see how people respond. So we can feel pretty confident that there's a causal relationship there. And then you wonder, well, how does that translate into 
the real world, this impact on aggression. And there is statistical evidence of correlations between intergroup conflict as well as interpersonal conflict and warm temperatures. So there's that out there, but then started to see reference to impacts more directly on individual mental health as well. Suicide, for example. And I know some people will describe suicide as aggression directed internally. So there's a a logical connection there, but there's good, again, statistical evidence of a correlation between higher temperatures and suicide rates. When you do these correlational studies, of course, you can't conclude causality, but people do a pretty good job of trying to control for other factors that might explain the relationship. And then there's also Mm -hmm. evidence for increased levels of psychiatric hospitalizations associated with higher temperatures. So, and some of these are just based on millions of data points. So that heat is something that is going to affect our interpersonal relationships and our mental health. And is it just an increase in irritability and discomfort associated with heat? I think that could be it. I mean, it it sounds so simple, but irritability and discomfort do a couple of things. One is it tends to narrow your focus of attention. So when you are just feeling uncomfortable, you start thinking about your own discomfort and you have less attention to devote to anything else. So if imagine you're having an interpersonal interaction and somebody says something ambiguous and it could be interpreted as a threat or as an insult, but it could be interpreted another way. If you're feeling hot, you might not have enough cognitive bandwidth to think about those alternate interpretations. And so you just go to the, this person has just insulted me. So it's that narrowing of attention that prevents you from engaging in some of the cognitive processes that normally buffer you from negative interactions. And then some researchers have speculated that it's a direct impact of that discomfort in the form of interfering with our ability to sleep. And, you know, anybody who has had serious insomnia knows that it can just make your life more difficult in a variety of ways. And it it can be so unpleasant. So some of those impacts on mental health could be due to the reduced ability to get a good night's sleep. It also makes me wonder, how does that compare to the discomfort caused by extreme coldness? There is some research on this, and it's a great question because, well, of course, a lot of people say climate change has bad effects, but at least we won't have such cold winters. So cold, it's not annoying in the way that heat is. It might be that it's easier to protect yourself from cold than from heat. I don't know if that's a legitimate speculation or not, but people are definitely made uncomfortable by cold weather, but you know, you stay inside, you put on sweaters, you get exercise. It doesn't seem to have that impact on our mental health. And interestingly, there are parts of the world where even warming winter weather, which you would think most people would welcome, it interferes with your ability to enjoy the winter weather. So instead of having beautiful, you know, packed snow, you have more days of slush and it's harder to get around. And if you're living in a Northern community where you're, for example, an Arctic community where you might rely on the winter weather to go out in your snowmobile and get across the lake to visit people on the other side of the lake, you can't do that anymore. It actually reduces mobility. So there are ways, even though warming winter weather sounds like a good thing, it doesn't seem to 
to counterbalance the impacts of warming summer weather. Right. And we're t- when you're talking about the psychological impact of heat, the assumption is that you're talking about changing weather patterns and not people who have always lived in a climate that is always very hot. Right. I mean, because in that theory is that those people have adapted to that and they've learned to adapt over time as a community. And it's not, so you're really talking about changing heat maybe or changing increase in temperature. Yes. And this is very much a question that people are asking these days, like, can you adapt? To what extent can you adapt? And of course, how can you adapt? And no question that we see differences around the world and the temperatures that people are comfortable with. But even people who live in a warm climate are affected when it gets even warmer. And the thing about heat is that there is an upper limit of what we're capable of dealing with just in terms of being able to maintain our body temperature through sweating and so on. We won't be able to completely adapt our way out of this physiologically. We might be able to adapt, you know, through again, design and architecture and social adaptations, but not physiological adaptations. I think we've kind of touched on so many different topics. I wanted to reserve this question for last because I'm just really curious. What are you working on now? This this year has seemed like such a long year. I have to stop and think about you know how long it's been. But it was actually just this year I published a scale to measure climate anxiety. So it was in the year or two before that that I was measuring that in a not very big and non-random sample, not representative sample. So some evidence that climate anxiety exists within the general population, this is in the US, and some of the things that was associated with. But now I really want to ramp up that research and find out more about, well, who is experiencing climate anxiety? What other things might it be associated with? You know, And just to briefly refer to one of your earlier questions, I think that issue of whether climate anxiety is always a bad thing or can it be a good thing? Can it be an appropriate response to a real problem? So what might determine whether it is a essentially a positive or a dysfunctional response to the situation we find in? So, so that's my main topic of research right now is just learning more about the existing levels of climate anxiety. Another question I have probably more about maybe not necessarily about your work, but I'm curious how the experience of COVID and the trauma of COVID, have you touched on that in any research in terms of thinking about the cumulative or mounting effects of multiple traumas, or are you trying to just kind of separate those two things? I have not touched on that. I've been aware of it in terms of particularly when we start asking about climate anxiety, it makes a difference kind of where we are in terms of the pandemic, because People who are feeling anxious in general are probably going to feel more anxious about everything. So we need to take that into account. But other than that, I haven't done anything specifically in my research. One of the questions I had early on was whether anxiety about COVID-19 would decrease anxiety about climate change, because a lot of times there's people propose that we have a finite pool of worry and you're worried about COVID. You don't have any room left to worry about something else. But that did not happen suggesting to me that there is a way in which people are responding to, and I think this whole year of 2020 is just many, many terrible things are happening and I'm worried about all of them. But I do think that there's some interesting overlaps in people's thinking about COVID-19 and they're thinking about climate change that can 
help us understand those emotional responses to both of them. And in fact, the societal responses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Dr. Clayton, I'm so happy that you made the time to talk to me today. I actually heard your interview on NPR and I just could not stop listening to it. I just thought it was such an important topic. And I'm so glad that you are doing this research and thinking about how this is impacting society and mental health and well-being in general. So I appreciate you and the work you do and for taking the time to talk to me today. Well, thanks. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope the listener enjoyed it as well. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. This has been Mind Stories with remote appointments in California and offices in downtown LA, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina Del Rey, Echo Park, and Santa Barbara. Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.